This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting the new book, Learning Walkthroughs, Students and Parents Better Learning Step by Step by Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli. This book is both a guide to students on how humans learn and how to study effectively, designed to help them make the most of their time at school, as well as being designed as a guide for parents to do a better job in their role supporting their child's education. Sections of the book include how we learn, in the classroom, feedback and improvement, study habits and techniques, reading and writing, independent learning, and learning in subjects. You can get learning walkthroughs, students and parents via the John Cat website. That's where you can also find my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that's the John Cat website or via Woods Lane in Australia or on Amazon or other online booksellers. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Christian Still. Christian is a deputy head academic with over 20 years experience as a head teacher and senior leader. Christian has a keen interest in education leadership, evidence-informed practice, and edtech, and has done a phenomenal job of combining the evidence on topics such as retrieval, space practice, interleaving, and successive relearning in his excellent book, Test Enhanced Learning, a practical guide to improving academic outcomes for all students, which is the book that we're talking about today. This is an absolute passion area for me, and especially the idea of empowering students to take charge of their own learning through retrieval practice that can be used in a way to boost their metacognition around the security of their own knowledge and that they can therefore use to direct their own future learning. For me, learning how to personally do this has unlocked learning in a way that's been foundational for so much of the work I've done, such as building the knowledge required to run this podcast, collecting ideas to write my books, speaking foreign languages, and even remembering people's names. I'm hopeful that this podcast will move our profession a little closer to a better harnessing of the power of the desirable difficulties, such as retrieval practice spacing and successive relearning to support our students' achievement. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest education tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas of education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Oh, and one more thing. If you are looking for some training in instructional coaching, I'll be running another full day intensive with two members of the Step Lab team on Tuesday, 12th of March in Melbourne. We ran a number of these intensives throughout 2023 and they went really well. I'll just share three comments to give you a taste of how the day goes. One person said, I feel so much more confident to go back into coaching conversations and I met some amazing and passionate educators, which was so inspiring. Another educator said, this intensive is a game changer. I'm excited to improve coaching at our school. And a third person said, this is the most effective PL that I've ever engaged with. The Step Lab model of coaching is based on rigorous educational research and presented in an 
accessible manner that lends itself to implementation in the classroom. The intensive is based on sound educational principles, allowing plenty of time for discussion, consolidation, and explicit rehearsal. If you are interested in some training and instructional coaching with myself and a couple of members of the UK team, uh, Anya and Rachel, who are coming out from the UK for this intensive, uh, just jump on ollilovell.com forward slash coach for that info. That's ollilovell.com forward slash coach. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into this episode of the Egypt Law Podcast. Christian Still, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Oh, it's, uh, it's a real privilege to be here. After many a listens in the car on the way to work, uh, the thought that I'm going to be listening to myself in a few weeks' time is uh, quite curious. Lovely to meet you, Ollie. <laughs> you too, Christian. Uh, first question, Christian, straight into it. What is test-enhanced learning? I don't think we want to make it more complicated than it really is. It's just using the idea of retrieving information, what teachers do every day, asking questions, and using that very much as part of the, the learning process. I think the main point is that we tend to see testing as something that we do at the end, and test-enhanced learning would say that there are plenty of opportunities at the start, during, as well as at the end. So it's using testing to promote the retrieval of long-term memory to aid learning. Great. Very concise summary. I'm wondering if you can take us into a little bit of how you kind of got into this whole test-enhanced learning space, just just briefly. That's the same as all teachers, I would think. They want the best outcomes possible for, for their pupils. And I had pupils that were um, perhaps the wrong side of a large attainment gap, and I didn't have enough time to close it swiftly. And this was a sure way to, to get them on board build their confidence and, and close that gap. Um, so very much it's about ensuring that children got to where they needed to be as quickly as possible. Um, and often teachers will recognise with limited resources. The one thing about test-enhanced learning is it's it's affordable. Mm, that's very true. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading your book, Test-Enhanced Learning, A Practical Guide to Improving Academic Outcomes for All Students. Uh, and one of the things I – well, first of all, it was a really, really thorough – uh, overview of the research, I thought, extremely thorough. Um, and I, I'd love to ask you towards the end of the interview about kind of how you how you manage the essentially what was a literature review of all the different topics that you covered. But what I thought is what we might use as a bit of a backbone of today's discussion is kind of exactly how you use it in your classroom. This might take a while for us to get through um, because I want to know about, you know, the structure, how you introduce it to students, ex- exactly the nitty-gritty. But I'm, I'm sure that many listeners have heard about kind of the idea of retrieval in the past and spacing and things like that but what's potentially even more useful than hearing in general I, general terms about the principles which we'll ideally get get to as well is how does someone who has done the level of research about what the research says themselves like you have what wh- how do they actually implement it so can you take us through maybe a bit of an overview first and I'll kind of stop you and butt in at certain times and be like tell us more about this but how what is a week look like in Mr. Still's classroom when it comes to uh, utilising these test-enhanced principles? Well, it involves, ironically, uh, or unsurprisingly, a lot of testing, um, only that we don't refer to it as that. Um, you know, I wonder if um, we, we simply touch on the, the model that looks at this, um, where there are four steps, and I'm sure, you know, and I've seen from the notes for the show that we want to talk about the knowledge the beliefs and the commitments that children make when it comes to their learning. So a lot of the work base is based around that. Uh, and there's a very curious um, inertia, shall we say, for testing, because, of course, your learners typically will have uh, a mixed set of views around testing, um, predominantly uh, connotations of, you know, um, that aren't, that aren't favourable. So you've got to broker that. Um the, the second thing is is that all we know that all the different subjects have different structures for their learning. Some of it is hierarchical. Um, some of it is more uh, networked. And depending on what subject you teach, you know, that has an influence. Uh, the age of the learner um, will have a, an influence, not, not too much. Learning benefits from testing pretty much apply to all learners and really young learners uh, in particular. Uh, and those that are poorly organized learners, it, it tends to do um, a lot of good for them. And then you have to kind of meld that all together. But I would say probably the biggest thing I learned, it's a question of time. Uh, that's the limited resource that we all we all have. 
And um, we've had a, a brief conversation previously in the background about, about planning the information. So I think interestingly, when it comes to testing, the most important step is deciding what is essential information, um, what unlocks the next stage of information. And it's probably best kind of looked at with a, a worked example and one that's quite fresh. So um, a young class of 13, 14 year old learners are looking at a book called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, a very famous book around uh, the Holocaust. Um, lots of positives, lots of challenges to that book. But of course, the context is, is you know, you know, core to understanding that book. But there are also um, some very early literary uh, devices that are adopted by the author early on. So you can't uh, see, think, uh, understand and move to comprehending about that book unless you know a little bit about the Holocaust, uh, a little bit about um, the history of what was going on in World War II or, or before World War II and, and in Germany at that time. So you have to decide what is essential. And then, of course, as the book opens up, there are two particular devices that he uses. One is foreboding, you know, the sense that this isn't right. But that is essential to understand what's going on and what's coming later. And the other thing he does is he does a lot of juxtaposition of two concepts. So if you want the children to recognise when two things are being placed beside one another that are vastly different to emphasise effect, they need to know that. Pupils definitely need to know quite early on what foreboding is and what juxtaposition is. And, and that is essential. And it's the classic... Um, teaching experience. I taught them on Friday what those two terms are. We looked at examples of what they were. And, and yesterday when we did our pre-checks before we moved forward, you know, we were really secure with one, but not the other. So I think in terms of using a lot of testing, you get a lot of feedback back as a teacher, which is one of the benefits, you know, that we, we've identified from uh, Rodeca's early papers. You know, there are lots of benefits to the pupils, but also to the teacher. Great. So, so, so on that planning front, so, uh, and I think that's a great place to start, Christian. You said, let's let's continue with this example of the boy in the striped pajamas. Do you, where do you plan this? Do you have like a spreadsheet where you're writing yeah. questions and answers? And if you do, can can you like bring up that spreadsheet? Because I'd love to really get into the nitty gritty of, of of this planning. Yeah, possibly a bit tricky on the phone, but I can certainly send one over to you to look at. So that's the first thing. They are essentially questions and answers, but they're what we call associate pairs. So they're a prompt and a prompt that signals a piece of learning. And that piece of learning might be in this term, in this case, it's a term. So it's quite straightforward that foreboding is a sense that something bad is going to happen. And that might be connected to a particular chapter in the book and to a particular character. And in English, I often map out the themes as well. I see what information, what themes get surfaced. But they are essentially two pieces of information that sit together around a nugget of knowledge. So they're not pure questions for English, but they can be. They can be. But when I'm designing a question, I'm always thinking about what do these two pieces, these two pairs, these two paired associates, what do they come together to prompt? So if it is that I want the, the students to recognize that a character has a power um, differential, um, which is the case of Bruno, the lead protagonist, and his father. And now the character, Bruno's father, is actually called father. Now that's a, a critical point to emphasize there's a power differential and that Bruno is quite in awe of his father. So the question won't be, you know, what is the power differential between Bruno and father? It would be, what does the use of father imply for the reader? And then the, the pair associate of that is that, that there is a power differential because that's the piece of knowledge I want them to hold. Now, once they've got that knowledge and that is secure, and we'll test that at some point when we look at questions around, I think it's chapter three, then we can start to look at the, the comprehension of that. So what does that mean? We can start to synthesize other pieces of information because there are other power relationships. That's the main one. Beautiful. And that's the bit of learning that we want to pursue. Great. All right. So we've just had a little pause in the interview because Christian has actually jumped on 
email and sent me over the the spreadsheet. What what I'm looking at there's there's a whole heap of tabs in this spreadsheet. Christian, is this across like lots of different subjects or is this yeah. what am I looking so, at? Lots of people have contributed what I call a deck, a flashcard, and a set of flashcards makes a deck. And down the bottom you'll see there's BSP, the boy in the striped pajamas. Oh yeah. And you'll see that it's made up of two parts. You know, we mm-hmm. still call them a question and an answer because most teachers understand that, but it is actually a prompt and a response. Mm-hmm. And the prompt is what is juxtaposition? And the answer is uh, it places two or more dissimilar characters or themes or concepts side by side to highlight the profound differences. And then that's tagged as a device and and that's it. Um, right. And so, so this, is, this is all the cards for the boy in the striped pyjamas. And this is really interesting because this is so for, for the interest of listeners, there are 186 paired associates, question-answer pairs, essentially, for the boy in the striped pyjamas. And to give us an idea, what what period of time would do you cover the boy in the striped pyjamas over? So in the UK, we have six terms. And if we do what we call a class reader, um, typically um, that will be about six, uh, probably 12 weeks, two half terms. And it is really important because we're back to the planning here. So if let's let's just take a side step to another subject you have to decide how big the deck is or how much information you want to convey and the boy in the striped pajamas is for a um as i said you know 13 year old learners so you know it's a relatively small deck but when you deliver a book to understand i think essentially to understand the book to be able to track what's going on i'm i'm always surprised you know there's about 186 bits of information and for the, my class that I know, there's about 50 pieces of vocabulary that are the barriers to understanding to what's going on. Now, we know that about five or six words on a page, if you don't know five or six words on a page, the page becomes inaccessible. So knowing what language they're going to bump into, making sure that they at least are familiar with those words means that you know when we're reading the book, it's a lot more enjoyable. But we are very much building up a, a vocabulary bank. So that leaves 130 bits of knowledge. It's, it's yeah. enormous what we're expecting kids to to know. Now, I'm not expecting them to know. And this is what I say this to them. I'm not expecting, you know, they're not going to be tested in the same way on English on 130 bits of evidence, um, you know, about the boy in the striped pyjamas. But to access the book and understand what's going on, they do need to know. And if you look at the questions for chapter one, for example, you know, it's very clear about what it is that they they need to know. Mm. And the key point about this is that, you know, as that information builds, as they build that knowledge, they become invested. And this is part of this wider planning. And of course, they they start to become encouraged because, you know, they've got like these hooks into the book, these hooks into the knowledge be it whether it be information, powerful knowledge, or whether it be powerful vocabulary, which enables them to to articulate what they know. And they get surprised because they start using this information, particularly mm-hmm. the vocabulary. That's the one that really grabs them. You know, so That's they can nice. describe the house as being desolate, a lonely place, a nasty place. Not that they needed help with nasty, but they did need help with what desolate was. You know, this idea that the house is abandoned or the yeah. new house. Yeah, great. So I'm I'm just having a look at this. This this is super interesting, and it's great to get into the. Uh, oh, you've actually shared it with me. So by me reordering yeah. the sheet, that's probably annoying for you. Sorry, I'm just that's like <laughs> playing around with the spreadsheet. So Fine. yeah, so I'm having a look. So just for for listeners, there's about 186. Well, I think it's 185 because there's a title line uh, items, which means essentially 15 per week for half yep. term. As you said, there's about. There's some a couple of devices thrown in there, but there's about 50 words. Um, and so just to read some of them for listeners, juxtaposition, symbolism, foreboding, or they're three devices. Vocab one, we've got Holocaust, dismissively, desolate, exasperation, plaque, conviction, counted, customary, splendor, clamber, uh, insolent, discard, peckish, and so on. Vocab two, we've got defamiliarization, Defamiliarization. I don't even know what that is. Presenting the familiar as something unfamiliar. Very interesting. Inscription simpered, 
just smile in a silly, annoying way for lawn. So I'm guessing vocab too is like higher level vocab. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of sites that you can put to, through, but I've become I actually end up coding them myself. So vocab one is I expect some of the class to have bumped into it. You know, when you do that pepper pot type question, somebody knows the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, I do expect somebody, and we're quite able children. So just for the listeners that have a familiarity of a standardized score i think the standardized score for the class is 107 so they're quite capable children so vocab one somebody in the room would have come across the word rummaged um i'm pretty sure but i don't think too many people would have come across defamiliarizations if you know someone like yourself hasn't uh, simpered is you know these aren't common words but you can you know get a reading for these for these words but they are absolutely essential that um, we know that Gretel, his sister, who is a particularly, uh, she's referred to as a hopeless case, a difficult sister to get on with, um, when she feels like she's in a position of power, she simpers. I don't think, mm. I'm pretty confident no one in the class would have known that. Mm. So, that's the vocab. And that, but that vocab is probably quite familiar to, uh, to many um to many, to many listeners in terms of like a kind of retrieval task. What, yeah. what, what's going to the next level? Earlier you said if we look at Chapter 1, it's pretty clear what, what Chapter 1 is about. So I'm just going to read some of these questions and answers to, and, and we'll see if myself, who is un, unfamiliar with, with this text, and the listeners can kind of tell what the Chapter 1 is all about. So question 1 is, what does Bruno hide in the wardrobe? Answer, things that belong to him and were nobody else's business. Oh, that sounds, sounds intriguing. Question oh, two. Yeah. So, so pause there. It sounds intriguing. Absolutely. So the point about it is that that's the that's the piece of information delivered through the text. But what's your perception of Bruno? Uh, well, he's he's obviously a bit of a, a a private soul, or he's got maybe he has something to hide. I'm not sure, or maybe he's doing something go. sneaky. Not sure. There you go. So the whole point about that quote is that he's got something to hide. So later on in the book, when he makes his way and he makes a friend on the other side of the fence of the Holy Course, he keeps it a secret. Bruno keeps secrets. Mm, great. There you so, go. That's a great quote. Uh, que- another question. Bruno is told by his mother to respect Maria, the maid, and to not imitate who? To not imitate the way his father spoke to Maria. Okay, interesting. So that's... Again, that's that's more information. I'm guessing that tells us something like his father did not treat Maria very well, for example. Correct. Or maybe he tra- treated her too well. Uh, and what's his know. mother's view of his? What's his mother's view of her father? Of his father? Uh, not someone to be co- to be imitated. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's see the other one. Who is Gretel? How old is she? Gretel, Bruno's older sister. Well, that's crucial, the crucial kind of stuff that students just need to be aware of. It's kind of like vocab. If honest with himself, what does Bruno not know? What job his father does? Okay, his father's being painted as a bit of a mysterious character here as well. Who will Bruno miss when he moves away from Berlin? Cart, Daniel, and Martin. Why does the family have to move? Bruno's father has a new job. Okay, so they're moving for the job that we don't know what it is. He's an unfamiliar guy. Uh, In Bruno's... In Bruno's Berlin home, what is out of bounds at all times and no exceptions capitalizes his father's office. Okay, great. So that's the end of all the flashcards in chapter one. And you're right, Christian. You're right. I have a sense <laughs> from what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. From seven flashcards, I already have a, I, I would imagine, you tell me if not, a, a clear picture of how the story is kind of established within chapter one. You know, there's something mysterious going on about his father. It's probably a little bit sinister um, because this stuff's out of bounds. It's it's shaping the whole family's life because it's um, causing him to move around. Bruno's the kind of guy who keeps secrets. He's leaving people he cares about. He's, he's got a sister and a mother. His mother doesn't approve that much of what his father does or how he relates to the maid, etc. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of information that comes just out of seven flashcards. That's quite remarkable, really. Well... That's excellent, and you are an expert learner, and you have missed one key piece of information that you have come across that is new to you, and you've talked about this position being sinister, but we wouldn't use that term in English, would we, class? What (laughs) word, beginning with F, would we use Oh, it's they're foreboding. They're doing a bit of foreboding. Oh, well done, obviously. Now you're an English scholar. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Um, so, so, but that's really important. So, in class, we talk 
or I taught the class and we mentioned foreboding. But that piece of information wasn't connected to that cluster of seven cards. And I know I went into teacher mode and respectfully to a fellow teacher, but the point about it was I didn't steal that moment from you because what the people on camera, sorry, what the people listening can't see is the smile on your face when you remembered foreboding because you felt proud of yourself. And, you know, that's a relationship between two colleagues, two professionals who love teaching. But it doesn't matter whether you're small or whether you're old. If you don't steal the opportunity for them to remember something and be pleased and surprised about it, right? So A, you smiled. B, you retrieved a piece of information from memory, which you and I both know has now made foreboding stronger. That's the testing effect. That's great. That's <laughs> lovely. So, I mean, these are obviously ex extremely well-written um, flashcards, uh, Christian. How how do teachers know if they are writing flashcards that are capturing the key ideas? And may maybe relatedly, like what talk us through the process of actually creating these. How did you go about it? How did you know what to include? So when I'm reading a text, it doesn't matter, you know, think about it as specification, whatever it might be. So it is only seven cards. It's about eight pages long, but this is the absolutely critical. This is the minimum. The one question that stands out there is who will Bruno miss, Carl, Daniel and Martin? Because throughout the book later, um, you find he can makes references to this friendship and the friendship degrading. Obviously, when you read that in chapter one, it's a throwaway comment and you don't know it's required until you, you know, they come up later and later and later again. I think they come up like four or five times. So, of course, you have to know the entirety you know, you have to be able to see the whole pizza to understand that that slice, you know, of that little bit of topping, that little piece of pepperoni is important. I, I don't think I've ever used a pizza analogy before for this, but let's go with it. So, you know, you have to see the whole pizza. You know, you have to know, you know, the different pieces of information. But again, the questions are simply designed to highlight, you know, the, there's a reference to Carl, Daniel and Martin. They don't actually need to know at this point. Um, but the other piece about the other point about that is that it promotes the, you know, his home life in Berlin very positively where he's got all these friends. So actually that piece of information is designed to get the children to track Carl, Daniel and Martin, but it also tells you that Bruno values friendship. So when he gets to Auschwitz, he goes seeking friendship. Mm. He needs friendship in his life. That's the point of that reference. Mm, that's great. And and I think another way, potentially, tell me if I'm wrong, another way to think about these flashcards, it's like, what are students going to have to eventually do with this information? What kind of questions are they going to be asked? So, uh, I don't know, I'm not an English teacher, but something like, just, what's the author's name? Uh, Boyne, B-O-Y-N-E, yeah. Boyne. How yeah. does Boyne uh, portray, uh, what's it? I've forgotten his name, no, Br Bruno's father, within yeah. the boy in the and I don't, and, and that's typically what teachers do. And I don't want them to do that. I want them to understand that there's a power differential. I want them to know that they need friendship in Bruno. Bruno needs friendship in his life. So questions about Carl, Daniel and Martin will come back up in other chapters, but it will be things like who will Bruno miss, you know, or who is Bruno beginning to forget, you know, or how is his friendship to Carl, Daniel and Martin changing? That's the point. It's the degradation of the relationship. Um, so, you know, again, it's just moving to, as I said, a, you know, I don't know if it's a triad, you know, where you've got these two pieces of information, but what do they point at? So the paired associate is what is it? I sometimes say to myself, what is it that I want them to know and remember? That's what I call understanding. But then the next step is, is what do I want them to comprehend? Bruno needs friendship in his life. That's what I need them to comprehend. So, so would you have a card that says, what does Bruno need in his life? Friendship? No, no, maybe, maybe. There might be one a little bit later on or, you know, as that um, storyline unfolds, there might be one like that later on, yeah. Hmm. The, the thing is he goes searching for friendship. It might be around, there might be a question around Schmall, you know, what need does Schmall fulfil that Carl, Daniel and Martin fulfilled the need for friendship? That, it might oh. be something like that. Okay. Interesting. So, Small being the character, the, the Jewish boy on the other side of the fence. Got it. So, you've got these seven flashcards. You've 
you've planned these before the before week one or lesson one. I don't know how however long you took to introduce yeah. chapter one. Talk us through how you introduce these flashcards or these paired associates in the course of teaching this chapter and how they're then used in subsequent lessons. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. Let's deal with the vocab. So vocab is potentiated. So we look at the vocab before we read. More often than not, I set those for homeworks because I don't really want to spend too much valuable lesson time dealing with vocab, you know, input in, output, out, know these words to understand the text. When you say set so, up for homework, what does that actually look like? So I, so I will say to them, all of these students have 20 minutes of um, self-testing, self-directed learning on Remember More. So these questions are available to the students via classroom.rememberMore.app and they can literally tick a button, chapter one, tick a button, vocab, and they can learn these vocab questions. So first of all, all the learning that's in the class is available outside of the class. And because we quiz every day and we do a little 10 question um, activity quiz every week, I, I know which I know which children are doing the flashcards because they answer with Bruno's father has a new job. You know, they, they recite the answer to the card rather than just general knowledge. But so there's information that can be done to make the lesson time more efficient. So that's potentiated learning. They do that ahead of the class. They do that with all the vocabulary. And then when they come, when they come into the next lesson, do you then like cold call a couple of students? With yeah, the, with cold that, call. With those words? Yeah, we'll quiz. Yeah, we'll quiz from chapter one. Um, we might look to look at some synonyms for some key vocabulary, but typically vocabulary isn't time that I waste in class. If I throw up 10 questions, the children walk through the door and I click, you know, click chapter one and I say go, you know, there'll be seven, eight questions, however many I choose on the board, they will include the vocab or I can not include the vocab. It's up to me. But, you know, that will often be, you know, the first five, 10 minutes of every lesson is quizzing as they're coming in and settling and the routine adopts very, very quickly. Now with the questions, there are two ways. Sometimes I'll ask them the questions before we read. This is the information I want you to look out for. Again, potentiated. And sometimes I'll say to them, we're going to quiz at the end. So pay attention. But I like the potentiated things because they start looking for Carl, Daniel and Martin. Um, and I always liken it to like, do you leave them up on the board, like the questions? You're like, these yeah, are the, more, these, or, or you just read them out? No, no, no. They're up more often or not, they're up on the board whilst we're reading. And we so just show up the spreadsheet. You like snip a bit of the spreadsheet out and project that yeah, up. Yeah, there's a, there's a website called, you could do that, but there's a website called classroom.rememberMore.app, which displays them for you. Okay. So you can have a timer if you want. You know, you can choose how many questions that you want, and there are different layouts for the questions that you, that you want. Um, and that's free. We just give that away. You've just got to put your put the questions in. So they, they're just up on the board. So I'm reading. And then when we finish the text, we might be having a conversation. Sometimes children will ask um, a question because they'll see a question on the board and they're reading that. And you can see them saying, oh, that's it. That's it. So it encourages them to kind of found it, nailed it, you know, is a quite a common phrase. Mm -hmm. They pick that up and then we will quiz. Now, in the early days, um, I was working in quite a challenging school. So we would write down the STEM. So who will Bruno miss when he moves away from his, from Berlin? And then on the other side, they, they write the other pair. Now, the routine's really important because I don't care whether or not they know the answer. What I care about is that they leave the room with the answer. So we have a little model of every question, every answer, every time. So there is no leeway. You write down the stem, who is Gretel, how old is she? And then you make sure that, let's say, if you're successful in getting that information, great. If not, you fill in the answer. So what happens is that the, the quiz itself becomes a piece of learning in their book. So at the end of that chapter, they've got seven questions with seven complete answers complete answers now some of the children then highlight the ones that they're less sure of which i think is a really nice technique um, or they green pen in our school green pen is for editing so they write down the stem they write down the answer and it's whether or not they can improve their answer or, or finish their answer so in their book when they walk out the door they've got seven questions 
and seven answers. And how do and they, they structure it themselves? How, how do they lay it out in the book? I assume you get them to lay it out in some way that it's kind of self-quizzable. Is it like left and right, fold the page yeah. in half? Is it some, sometimes, time? yeah, that's a really good point, Ollie. Sometimes they just fold the page in half so they've got a left side and a right side. Sometimes they do it on two lines, question and answer below. Because remember, the point of the quizzing is to, to secure the information. It's not whether they know it or not. What's interesting is that when we come back the next day, we might then quiz on those seven questions or we will quiz on a mix of questions from chapter one and chapter two. And, and the whole point about it is, is that, you know, they've got the answers in their books. So sometimes we'll say to them, you know, we'll write them down again. Sometimes we'll just put, you know, we, these were the, the questions that we covered yesterday. You know, I can ask you, you, you might be able to see the spreadsheet, but can you remember the names of the three boys that he missed from Berlin? And you maybe you can, maybe you can't. But again, I don't care as long as when we finish this dialogue, you write down Carl, Daniel and Martin. Mm -hmm. So that those questions from question one, you know, are kind of in the bank and they will be revisited and the children know they will be revisited. And of course, we appreciate now that bank's getting bigger and bigger all the time. So what happens is when we get to maybe the fourth or the fifth lesson, maybe we're on chapter 20, uh, sorry, maybe we're on chapter two, three, four. <clears throat> we've now got two sets of information. We've got early acquired information and we've got more recently acquired information. And you've just got to be mindful. You know, you've got to keep dipping back. Um, but the process um, accelerates exponentially. So <clears throat> it's quite slow at the start. Um, but I've got students now that can answer 10 questions in a minute comfortably. They can answer 10 questions in 20 seconds. So we've got lots of different, you know, little little games that we play. But, but typically it's, here's the question, what's the response? Sometimes we do, if the response is Carl, Daniel and Martin, what's the question? Mm -hmm. So kind of like a little jeopardy. But essentially, if it is new knowledge, we tend to go slow. And if it's old knowledge... It's quite snappy. Let's recall. Let's recall. Recall. Okay. Until the bank builds, and then once a week we do ten questions, and I take in that that score. Okay. Now that um, one you'll want to talk about because there's a self regulation routine. But we'll pause a second. Most certainly. Um, I'm wondering. So, so do you have any students saying why are we copying this down in our books? Isn't it's already in the Remember More app? Um, no, no, I don't think I've ever had that. Okay. That question, the questions asked, you know, I work very hard to write very short questions. So that's the other thing, you know, they are minimalist, you know, why does the family have to move? You know, it could be family move question mark, you know, and the children um, are encouraged to keep things as short as possible. We try to be as efficient as possible at all times, but no, I'm not anybody had and say, why do we write those down? And there's only kind of, it's only three minutes, four minutes. So six, seven questions are done in like three or four minutes. To, to so it is, it down. get it, get it down. And is that get done right at the end of the lesson or? or, or more, more often, well, it can be done at any time. This is the thing about testing. It is done at any time. Once we get a couple of weeks in, we tend to not write the stem. We just write the, we just write the response. So it's only at the beginning when we're putting the questions into the book that we write down the essentially the prompts and the response once once they've got the responses they just write down the responses and do they have different parts of their book where they keep the like full questions and answers and then there's like the rough quizzing section or something where they're actually retrieving yeah. it interesting so when they're recording the knowledge for the first time it's in the front but if it's a quiz it's in the back okay cool and so at the start at the start of every lesson does that look the same there's like a a bit of quizzing that goes on then? Pretty, like a pretty much. So I would say that every, of course, the other thing um, for listeners, I was, uh, I'm being a school leader and I'm forever moving around. I'm into lots of different lessons. So I'm literally arriving at the same time. So it's in, log in, and then it takes literally five seconds to set a quiz up. I mean, you could do it now. If you went to classroom.rememberMore and you select Boy in the Striped Pajamas, it is literally chapter one, seven questions, go. I mean, we joke, we're faster than Usain Bolt. You know, you've got a quiz on the board in less than eight seconds. So most of the time, I said that they come in, the skill of the teacher is deciding what knowledge needs to be accessed. You know, and if you're doing something new, then it's a little bit slower. And if you're doing a recall activity, then it's 
a lot, lot faster. You know, it's interesting. The children often want to play rounds, you know. Once they got to the point where they're starting to know this stuff, once you get into like, you know, by the time I get to chapter three, four, five, you know, they're, they're wanting to do three or four rounds of quizzes. We're doing maybe 40, 50 questions in about typically under 10 seconds, uh, under 10 minutes, easy. Mm, it's great. And so you, you can, you, you just show up 10 questions at a time. You, it's always 10 questions at a time. Again, it depends on the class and, you know, what the teacher knows, but we do, we do, you know, we do the fast five and we do, you know, the magnificent seven and sometimes we do 10. But again, if it's knowledge that they know and it's just a reminder, you know, 10 questions can be done. And and the interesting thing is about maximizing the people that are thinking. So the 10 questions go up on the board and let's say it's 10 that I think they know, we'll do it on their fingers. Question number one, boom. And then all they do is they put their finger up if they know the answer. Question number two, done. Three, done. Four, done. And then I might say, Ollie, what was your answer to number four? If they put their finger up, you know, they say they know it and, and I'll just hold them to account and they'll say, you know, question number four, who will Bruno miss when he moves to Berlin? And let's say Ollie puts his finger up to say that he got it right. And I'll say, answer. He'll say, Carl Daniel Martin. Great. Five. So what I'm doing is I'm getting, you know, 30 children to answer 10 questions. Right. Today's lesson. Next chapter. Where are we at? Let's go. And it is just that recall of information. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include examples of high-quality flashcards of of the likes that Christian has created, what successive relearning is, with important examples, the role of success in retrieval efficiency and motivation, how self-directed testing can be integrated into homework and the benefits of this, the crucial value of integrating flashcards into tests as a motivational lever for students, common tools and resources that you might find useful and helpful to begin experimenting with these ideas in your classroom, and much more. And if you've been thinking about signing up as a patron for a while, now is the time to do it. This is because I've just released a new online course on practical classroom management. And if you sign up as a patron before April 1st, you'll get serious discounts on this course. If you support the podcast for five Aussie dollars a month, you get the course for 50% off. That's a saving of $25. So you essentially get the first five months of your ERRR podcast summaries for free. If you choose to support the podcast for $14.50 Aussie dollars per month, you'll get the Practical Classroom Management course valued at $50 absolutely free. And you'll also get the usual access to bonus ERRR content such as monthly members-only podcast episodes that give you access to some of the behind-the-scenes discussions that I have with educators from around the world. So if you have been meaning to sign up for a while, if you'd like an actionable summary of the episode, and if you want a significantly discounted access to my Practical Classroom Management online course, sign up before April 1st for all of these benefits to support the show and to help keep it sustainable for the long term. To sign up, just go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the Bar podcast with Christian Still. You said you have some kind of games to spice it up or, or do it in different ways. Talk us through them. Uh, the one that's probably the most favourite is last person standing. So this is a favourite one to end the lesson. So they're all standing up in front of their chairs and the question's up on the board and I tend to read the question out and I'll say, who is Gretel and how old is she? Let's start us off, Ollie. Who is Gretel and how old is she? I'm asking you that question. Oh, oh so you should know. I don't know. It, it just says Who is Gretel? Gretel? older sister. Gretel How is, old is she? three years older than Bruno. Brilliant. Well done, Ollie. Nominate. And then you nominate one of the children in the room that's standing. And that goes across to another student. They get asked a question. If they don't know it, I just say nominate. That person knows that they have to sit down and they nominate somebody else. And the, the idea is to knock the other children out of the game. 
And so they, it's do they recall the questions from, from long-term memory or are the questions up on yeah. the board and they pick one of the questions? No, it's just the, the question stem is appearing on the board. I read it out. And if they answer it, I click the response. So it's showing. <clears throat> if they don't know it, another pupil gets nominated. So what happens at the end of the round is you've got eight, nine children still standing. You know, sometimes it's less. And, and if you are the last person standing, you, you know, there's a little bit of kudos. You get a couple of house points and that type of thing. But of course, you're standing. Thank you very much. You can leave. So the, the, the reward is you get to leave first. And the, the fight to leave first is, is quite dramatic. To be last person standing is quite interesting. And what happens is the children that are good at this tend to, tend to be the ones that are practicing at home. So all of a sudden to be the last person standing has value. And, you know, when we were running the app, we, we had kids that were doing eight, nine, 10 hours of homework. Self-quizzing. Self-quizzing because they wanted to win the game. You know, they wanted to be the last person standing. So that's one game. And we also do another game where 10 questions go up on the board and it's who can answer the 10 quickest. So the moment they've read the questions, if they think they know all 10, they sit down. So that's the reverse. That's the first to be sat down. And then the first person that sits down, we say, name them. And they have to go, and if they do that, but again, it's about maximum participation. Everybody plays, everybody's involved. Um, so we worked with some disaffected learners in a unit where the children weren't able to access um, the learning uh, in the main part of the school. And those boys in particular, they were all boys, absolutely loved quizzing. And I had one student who could name all 23 characters in Romeo and Juliet in under 20 seconds. So their name would go up on the board, the character's name, and they would tell you who they were and what their relationship was. These were children apparently, apparently, that couldn't access the curriculum. Of course they can access the curriculum. It's just got to be presented in a way that, you know, they, they can get access to. And I'm pretty confident they knew what was going on with the story. Mm. Um, they just didn't like writing about it. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. That's the additional challenge. Is there anything you do around... So before then, you helped me make the connection with the idea of foreboding. Do you have any kind of structured ways of supporting students to make connections between the different uh, flashcards over time? It's really interesting. So, you know, making the, the – so these are nodes. You're right. These nuggets of knowledge are just the nodes. <clears throat> and often you want to identify the bridge between those two. That's what teaching's for, I believe. Um, it's an efficiency model. So I tend to do that in the class. We'll often say, you know, how do you know that? Um, and I use something called clean questions. And when you say, Bruno, uh, uh, there's a power difference. What is power? Um, so we get them to explore the the node that way. So, but more often than not, I would say that's what the teaching aspect is rather than um, the question. The questions is just the knowledge. What do they need to know? So what you're talking about there is the difference between knowledge and comprehension. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? You know, that's a lot more sophisticated. That's, I think, my job as a teacher is. So, so tell us more about that and how you do that. How do you use these as these flashcards as a springboard for building that comprehension on top of the knowledge? Okay, let's demo it very quickly. Tell me three things you know about Bruno. Okay, I've, I've, I've hidden the th thing now, so this is a true retrieval. Uh, he keeps things in his closet that yep. not other people should know about. Uh, he's, he he doesn't know what his father really does, and he, he's had to move as a result of his father's job. Oh, that's amazing. You know, to be honest, bear in mind you didn't even realise you were in the lesson. Look how much you can remember from the quizzing that we've done. That's really great. Lots of positive reinforcement. And then you mentioned about his father and he doesn't know what his father does. So why doesn't he know what his father does? Well, I, I don't. Well, given the context of the story, I'm guessing his, his father is, some, is a Nazi or something like that. That's correct. That's correct. But his office is out of bounds at all times. So his father doesn't allow him access to his life. His father is distant in that way. Now, the interesting part here is, is that how does the author present that distance and that power? You know, why, why does the author choose to call him father? Do you call your, your father father or do you call him dad? And the kids all say dad. And I say, so what's the difference between calling him father and calling him dad? What does that tell us? 
So it is just the good skills of the of the teacher. So now we've got all these nodes of knowledge, you know, when we come back to it, how would you summarize Bruno's relationship with his father? You know, the children come up with words like, well, it's distant. And and I think that's all set up for the end of the play when unfortunately, sadly, Bruno um, enters the camp and, and doesn't come away. Um, there's another particular point about Bruno early on that he's small and therefore small for his age and that's so he can get under the fence. Now, if you don't pay attention to the fact that he's small, obviously him getting under the fence later on becomes far more difficult. Um, so we make a point of saying, you know, I think that's definitely one of the questions. When Bruno's picked on, what is he picked on for? Well, he's picked on for being small, right? So that's the knowledge. So why do we need to know that he's small? Well, to comprehend that he can get under the fence. Mm. So again, once you've got the nodes, the the real kind of interesting part is to kind of uncover the learning. You know, why is that important? And then the real part is why introduce that so early on? It's to make the story credible. You know, that's a really complex thing to for a 13-year-old person to comprehend, you know, the credibility of the characters. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's kind of constantly revisiting the ideas, coming back to them, linking them together. That's that's what the teacher does to help students to make those connections. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's, let's come to this idea of the weekly quiz, Christian. Can you tell us about that? Really simply, on a Friday, um, I always give out postcards on a Friday, recognise students that are contributing. You know, the app, when we were running the app, you know, we had time, we knew how much time they'd spent on it. So we were always recognising them. And you know, there is a lot of conversation around um, whether quizzing should be um, relaxed and low stakes. And there isn't any evidence either way on that particular point. So, um, you know, but you'll hear a lot about quizzing, low stakes quizzing. So most of the time, all the quizzing, you know, is very informal. It's about what we learn. Um, it's what we can get access to and be reminded of. But on a Friday, we just do 10 questions under a little bit of a test um, conditions so 10 questions up on the board write down the answers and then we go through a, um, a self-directed routine where they mark them they give themselves two marks if it's correct and accurate so they've nailed it they give themselves a mark if they've got the right sentiment you know it's correct but maybe it's not quite accurate what so do you mean by accurate? The, right so the question about the three friends it's carl daniel and martin if they write down you know who will he miss when he leaves berlin and they just write down his three friends well, that's correct, right? But it's not accurate in the sense oh, okay. that it's called Daniel and Martin. Right, literally, quote, un- quote, unquote, his three friends rather yeah. than three names. Yeah, okay. and, and what's really, in- yeah, good. Thank you for outlining that. And I think the important part about that is, is that they obviously they edit it. So they will write down his three friends and they will give themselves one mark. And then they will write down in green pen, Carl, Daniel and Martin. That was the missing bit of information. And the reason I learned to do that is I didn't want to spend, you know, more than five minutes on this quiz and you end up co-marking their work. So I refused to tell them, is it two marks? Is it one mark? Is it no marks? And if you haven't got the answer written down, write it down. Again, remember, every question, every time, every answer is there. And then I just record a score out of 20. And what's really interesting is that, you know, I've got box plots. I think there's a couple of um, posts that are on Christian still that show you the box plots and what happens is that, that you know they start off with six out of ten and it, it gradually the box gets tighter and it improves now that in itself would be impressive but the other thing that's impressive is is not only is the number of questions they're getting right improving and the class average improving they're also recalling more and more and more questions and the improvement is that they're, you know, they're getting six, seven, eight uh, as an average over the few weeks. And then the question bank that they're drawing from is getting exponentially bigger. So not only are they getting, you know, um, improving a score, they're improving a score on a much bigger bank of questions. And that happens every single time. Um, let's talk about the idea of successive relearning. Can you tell us what this mm. is, Christian? So Catherine Rawson's work is basically, you, you've got to go back. You know, you need you need to access the information. You need to have success and you need to keep going back to that information. And this one-stop retrieval is nonsense. So the idea that you can, you know, do retrieval practice, and I suppose that's where the, you know, this week, last week, last term, last year type protocol comes up. But there are some very 
key data behind successive relearning. You know, when you're asked to recall a piece of information once, there is a sweet spot. It's somewhere between three and four. Um, you know, so I think it's a very simple point for all teachers, you know, and I think I write about this in the book, plan for the children to forget stuff. You know, that, that's the nature of learning. So never fulfill, never fill all of your teaching time. You know, probably work in a region of around 70 and 80% because you're going to have to go back over stuff just like I did on Monday. I taught them, you know, juxtaposition and foreboding. You know, I thought, you know, the quiz at the end of the lesson told me they had both. Of the two, foreboding is far easier, but they remembered juxtaposition, ironically. In 30 seconds, we could remind them of foreboding. That's the successive relearning. But that's also the protocol behind every question, every time, every answer. You know, I don't care whether they get it right or wrong. I care whether they leave the room with the right answer. So just make sure that, you know, you plan to go back over this information. And of course, everybody wants like this optimal figure and an optimal time. But the key other piece of information is when will they need to access this information? You know, and depending on what exam system you're in, it could be two years away. It could be you know, you're at the end of the, the, you know, the course and you're doing the last little bit of the content and, you know, it could be three months. So the things you need to know is, you know, what do they need to know and when do they need to have access to it? Those two bits of information are key um, and you need to go around. And I, I tend to use a, a bastardization of half-life. So if I need that information in three weeks time, I need to do it now and then halfway and then halfway again and halfway again. So it's it's kind of like half-life. If I need it in two years' time, I need to revisit it in a year, in six months, in three months, in one and a half months or six weeks. So it's always like on a half-life. But every time you're relearning it, you're playing around with a different time reference because learning something is slow. Relearning something is super, super efficient and very fast. So, yeah, just, just to build on the successive relearning idea. So, I'll try to articulate my understanding of it and you tell me if, if, if your, yours is the same or if I'm on the right track. So, to, to, to do retrieval with students, we're basically just trying to get them to draw some information from their long-term memory into their working memory and kind of, quote-unquote, activate it. And the process of that, bringing the information from long-term into working memory, strengthens the, the memory trace. Both Perfect both the storage strength, how, how well it's kind of stored in memory and also how accessible it is, um, the, what we call the retrieval strength. So that's retrieval. However, often when we try to get students to retrieve or pose a question, um, as you do with your quizzes, students will be unsuccessful with the retrieval, right? And so the idea of successive relearning is, okay, well, that's all right, but what we actually need to do is we need to test you again to actually make sure you can retrieve it yourself. We've just given you the answer but that answer might not have stuck. And so what you were saying about a criteria or a criterion um, is of, of three, and this is something I read in your book, which I thought was a good summary. In the first, the first time students learn something, if they're using successive relearning, they can kind of, if they ensure that they recall it three times correctly in that first uh, or in that kind of encoding phase, that's going to be a, a pretty good bet. And then if they try to retrieve or if they ensure that they receive it, retrieve it successfully at least once on three additional occasions, it might be like two days later, then five days later, then seven days later or something like that, that is really going to help it to stick really effectively. Yeah. And so it's the difference between, and if we think about our more and our less successful learners, a less successful learner might be given a question and they go, oh, I can't remember. You tell them the answer and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right, I remember now. And then they kind of don't think about it again. (laughs) Well, so the answer is inaccessible, right? Mm -hmm. The memory is probably there. So you want to give them a, you know, give them the opportunity to get access to it. Mm -hmm. As you did with me, you said it starts with F. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and a cue like that will often get them there. So this is the interesting part, you know, and you in your natural, you know, your interest in this you talked a lot about terms that a lot of staff may not be familiar with but you know you talked about that encoding phase you know let's call it learning so in that early phases you know the idea that you need to go over that information more than once you know and i use the three plus three 
You know, so we'll need to talk about foreboding three times or we need to get you to access that word three times when you're presenting it. Don't think you can just teach them once, one and done. It just doesn't doesn't happen. So at the first point of learning, you know, asking them and prompting them and, and revisiting them that, you know, if I just said to you, how old is Gretel? Again, you're going to have to think about that. Oh, Gretel, sister, Bruno, sister, 12. Okay. And I use um, a lot of articulation. If I say my class one, two, three, it typically means I want them to articulate a word, produce a word. And we talked about production effects. So a word like juxtaposition, you know, the children won't want to say it particularly. It's quite difficult to say, you know, but I want them to articulate that because it activates another part of their brain that says, right, I've now got to verbalize this. So juxtaposition. So we've now asked them what the word is and what is it? And then we'll see it in the book and I'll say, I can see two things being presented here very differently. Can we re recall what that is? A couple of hands will go up and I will wait. And I'll say, you do know this. It starts with the sound juxt and quite a few hands will pop up because that's activated that piece of information and they've got there. And then I won't go cold call. I'll go one, two, three and I'll get a call response. Now, we've now looked at that word three or four times. Now, that's a fairly strong um, uh, research uh, consideration that that's anchored. You know, we've gone over that three or four times, but I will come back to that on three separate occasions. And I think that's the bit that, you know, your listeners will, and the teachers will be interested. Exposure for encoding, yeah, three times. Mm. But successive relearning, revisit it three times. Great. So and even then... It, even then, we're now saying, when do I need to get access to that information? Two years, one year, six weeks. But, you know, at three, the point for encoding, three re three revisits. And, of course, you know from this podcast that we quite often quiz and there are 10 questions and that goes on for the 12 weeks. They bump into those cards. So I can tell you that the success rate for a flashcard through the app peaks around six exposures. Mm -hmm. So once they've exposed, been exposed to a question six times, they, they get close to recalling it. Well, let's think about that. When in class do we teach something six times? We don't. That's I try true. to. <laughs> yeah, that's ideally your first, your, your three plus three that you talked about um, or even yeah. spread out over a little bit longer. Fascinating. Any final calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Christian? Um, work less. You know, I think we've got a profession that really does um, – uh, you know, push this, you know, we give it all for our children. Just remember there are children that are going to come afterwards. So take good care of yourself. And, you know, if test enhanced learning can, can enable more teachers to stay in the profession for longer, then I'd be thrilled to, to see um, more experienced teachers in the profession. Cause I don't know what it's like for you, but we are, we are losing teachers hand over fist. We can't keep hold of them. Definitely true here, unfortunately. And I think that message about kind of thinking about sustainability in the long term is absolutely crucial because um, we're circling back to the the idea of teacher knowledge that we were talking about before we started hitting record today. Yeah. Uh, teacher knowledge is absolutely crucial and it does take, as with all knowledge, it takes time to, to, to accumulate. And if we don't stay in the profession for long enough to, to accumulate, our, our students will... Um, unfortunately not benefit as much as they could but christian Steele, thank you so much for your time today uh it's so wonderful to chat with another educator who is as passionate about the research uh as as myself and particularly about these ideas of re retrieval space practice and successive re relearning and so on this is really what i think in many ways it's sad that it's kind of been uh, one of my and sounds like one of your superpowers as a teacher right because it's something that has helped uh, I feel that it's helped my students to progress really, really effectively. And, and the more, uh, and I've been lucky enough recently to work into a part, in a maths department that has a, a whole department approach to that. Uh, but every teacher that I speak to who actually takes uh, the testing effect seriously is, by their reports, having really positive, has seen, seen really positive impacts from it. And so it shouldn't actually be a superpower. Nope. Um, it should actually be a common power. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, the work that the work that you've done in your excellent book, Test Enhanced Learning, that brings the research together really well, I think is a, is a fantastic step in that direction. Uh, so thank you so much for your time in these two days in, in the discussion. Good luck with uh, moving towards more personalization, hopefully with the successive relearning and I'm looking forward to our, our next discussion. Brilliant. Appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ollie. 
Hey all, it's Ollie again. One more thing before you take off, and that is Ed Threads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My weekly free newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary of teaching and learning that you get access to for free. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show, and that I've discovered from scouring the internet and other sources. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing right now and sign up before you forget. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next...